Okay, well, as John said, I'm one of the pastors at Redemption Church Calgary North. It's an honor to be with you here this morning. Greetings from the pastors and elders and the staff down south, I suppose. It is a real pleasure to be here. I don't, uh, John didn't mention this, but um, we've been trying to figure out a time for me to come, I think close to a year maybe, even into the dates didn't work out, and finally something has worked here. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to be with you. If I'm not mistaken, it wasn't too long ago, just a few weeks ago, that here at Redemption Old, you were working through and finished a series on the purpose and values of this church. Pastor John, I believe, preached through the mission to see lost people saved, saved people mature, mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. He, he preached through Redemption Life, which is the, the outworking of that mission in personal discipleship, you know, abide in Christ, grow in the church, reach the community. And he preached the six distinctives. I think we all agree that all of that, the mission, the redemption life, the distinctives, these things are important. They're essential, really. We want to be a church that's on mission. We want to be ambassadors for Christ who live gospel-driven lives. We want to be fervent in prayer and bold in Christ-centered preaching. We want passionate worship, and we want to make worshipers. We want to be a church that's purposeful about disciple-making and a, a church that's courageous in evangelism. All these things are foundational to a biblical, life-giving, God-glorifying church. That's why that's our mission. That's why there are distinctives. But now listen, if you're a church that excels in all those areas, if you tear off the roof and worship, if small groups are just overflowing with people who love to come together and communicate Christ, if, if Redemption Kids are just overflowing with wonderful messages for the children to soak up and learn about Christ, and if all these things are just amazing. But if you're missing one thing, all of it would be worthless. If you fail in this one area, no matter how good the worship, how close you stick to the distinctives, it would be pointless. And that one thing is love. If we fail in love, it's worthless. We must love God and we must love one another. Those are the most significant commands. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you love one another. And you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love matters. Redemption Church Old is nothing without love. And as this absolute essential characteristic of Christianity, love ought to mark this church. And of course, we're not talking just about love for one another. We're talking about love for God as well, because love for one another flows from our love for God. So it's critical importance the Redemption Church Olds is a church that genuinely loves God. Consider these verses. 1 Corinthians 2.9 No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who what? Who love Him. Or James 1.12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who what? Who love Him. Genuine love for God is essential. It's everything else 
is secondary or flows from it, we could say. But this morning, if love is so critical, it's so foundational, it's so necessary, what I want to do is rather than exhort you to love more or to love better, I want us to see the biblical basis for love. Where does it come from? What motivates us and compels us to love? What internalized truth will make love inevitable? We find the answer in the gospel of Luke. Luke's gospel is a detailed account of the life of Christ, emphasizing his sinless humanity and his compassion towards outcasts. It was written to show that the Son of Man is seeking and saving the lost. In chapter 7, we find an incredible true story about Jesus evangelizing a Pharisee through a transformed life. Jesus actually saves a wretched sinner in order to show the gospel to an even worse sinner. And in the process, he teaches us about love. This morning, I want us to transport us to a first century dinner party where we will observe the Savior and where we will learn from a sinful woman. The big idea of the message here this morning is simple, not hard to understand. Jesus forgives sins, which compels us to love. Jesus forgives sins, which compels us to love. In order to arrive at that conclusion, we're going to ask two personal questions that arise from the text. And how you answer these two questions determines how well you love. Let's pray together again and we'll get to the text. Father, we're we're thankful for the clarity of your word. We're thankful for how it speaks to our hearts directly. And we're thankful for the gift of the Spirit that ministers your word into our hearts so that we can become more like Christ, so our joy can increase, and so we can worship you purely. Father, we thank you that we can come together as the gathered church in the name of Christ. We can worship and exalt our Savior who has loved us so well, who has first loved us and propelled us, compelled us, caused us to love you in response. You've been so good to us. Lord, I pray as we sit under your word that our hearts would be receptive and you would apply it to us and we'd be doers of it. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're not already there, turn into the, the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Corey will happy to lend you one, or you can keep it if you need it. We're talking about the significance of love. And how well you love is largely decided by what you believe. This morning's text challenges us with two questions about what you believe. And the first is this. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? That's an important question, don't you think? Your answer impacts your daily life and your eternity. What you believe about Jesus is really it's the most important thing about you. But it's easy to make assumptions. It's easy to take your faith in Christ for granted. You see, what you believe about Jesus, it's not, it's not really known by what you say. It's not really known by what you think. It's known by what you do. It's known by your actions. What you functionally believe about Jesus is known by how you live. That was the case for two two people who spend an evening with the Son of God. We begin with the Pharisee. Chapter 7 of Luke, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, that is Jesus, to eat with him. 
And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, Pharisees were high-class Jews who kept the law legalistically. They created man-made traditions in order to elevate themselves and ostracize unwanted sinners. We could describe kind of a modern-day Pharisee as someone who does spiritual things, but they don't really love God because they don't see their need for Him. With that in mind, this first verse kind of sets the scene. It sets the scene for what's about to take place. And you know what? It's fairly ordinary. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus often eats meals with people. Eating together was a sign of acceptance or of intimate fellowship. Hospitality was common in the Middle East today as well as back then. In this case, it was, it was expected for um, the kind of the important religious leader, that would be the Pharisee, to invite a noble guest over like Jesus. After all, Jesus was gaining fame. He was the, the rabbi who everybody was knowing, who everybody was hearing about. So Simon invited him to a formal banquet and honors Jesus with his invitation. And Jesus actually honors him by accepting the invitation. Note one thing. These dinners were social gatherings. They were welcome to the entire community. So while Jesus was the special guest, anyone could go. The whole, and likely they did go, right? Jesus always had a crowd around him. So likely the Pharisee's house is filled to the brim with people. Now only the guests sit at the table. Only the guests engage in conversation, but anyone can go. So don't picture kind of our modern, private way of doing hospitality. Uh, the whole town is there. And of course, the, the honored guests are reclined at table. That was the custom. Their feet would have been out, maybe in a U-shaped table, three to a side or so, and they're just around the table talking. It's all very normal. So far, so good. But there are a couple things that are unexpected. First, as we'll see, there's a glaring omission of the traditional courtesies of the day. More on that soon. But also another thing you think about it, isn't it a little odd that the Pharisee invited Jesus, considering how Pharisees viewed him? From the context, it seems, it seems probable that the Pharisee wants to investigate Jesus. He wants to maybe ask him, why do you associate with sinners? Why do you spend time with tax collectors? Why do you disregard our traditions? Jesus, you say you're a rabbi, but why don't you keep the Sabbath? Two verses earlier, Jesus recites accusations against him. He says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Surely Simon had heard about Jesus. He knew him well. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus raised the widow's son. And in verse 16 of chapter 7, it says, Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So certainly the Pharisee knows about Jesus, but it's likely he's got mixed motives, right? He wants to see what this guy's really about. Of course, Jesus knows the man's heart, and he knows his derogatory opinion of him, but he accepts the invitation anyway. Why? Because Jesus exemplifies loving your enemy. Because Jesus is after the Pharisee's heart. Jesus wants to show the Pharisee the gospel. 
There's something else that's unusual. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Stop there for a moment. And behold. That's an emphatic clue to the reader. Listen up. Something important, something staggering is happening next. Pay attention. Well, what is it? A woman of the city who was a sinner enters the Pharisee's house. In the words of my five-year-old daughter, seriously? Are you for real? I mean, she's so out of place. Like we said, she would be welcome, but she wouldn't want to be there. As a woman of the city with unbound hair, she may have been a prostitute. We don't know that for certain. But what we do know is she was marked by her sin. She had a reputation for her sin, whatever that may have been. And as a result, we could describe her this way. She was likely a Middle Eastern village peasant who was alone, destitute, despised, and hopeless. To the Jews, she was an outcast. She was a loser, a nobody. To the Jews, she was the scum that clogged up the city. She was definitely to be avoided and shunned. Life for her was a hard-fought battle. It was a struggle to survive. Shame, disgrace, despair, these things marked her life. They were everyday experiences. No one cared about her. No one noticed her, except maybe to despise her or to avoid getting close to her. And no one loved her except maybe her fellow outcasts. This is the woman who enters into the Pharisee's house. There's nothing desirable for her to be in that place. No reason at all for her to go to a Pharisee's house. Likely the Pharisees would hate her, they would shame her, they would embarrass her, they would mock her. Something, however, convinced her to ignore her inhibitions. Something was strong enough for her to enter into this man's house. Jesus is in town. This is probably her first encounter with Jesus. She'd likely heard of his teaching and witnessed his miracles and compassion towards outcasts, but she's never been this close to him. So we have two very different people who believed very different things about Jesus, and they spent an evening with him. And as we'll see, what they actually believed about Jesus caused them to approach him in very different ways. Let's look first at how the woman approached Jesus and how that revealed what she believed. Verse 38, in standing behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, for this verse to really sink in, we need to, like I said, transport ourselves to a first century banquet because this is staggering. I mean, this is jaw-dropping. This doesn't happen. Imagine right now, just in our service here, If somebody came into the back door, somebody maybe looking a little rough, maybe the town drunk, maybe somebody everybody really kind of knew and like, what is he doing here? And he just comes right up to the front and just stands there. How could you not notice him? How could you not wondering like, what's going on? Like, what's going to happen next? She enters into the house. She's standing at Jesus' feet. All eyes are on her. That's her. She's here. Jesus' feet, what is she doing? 
And then what happens next? She just falls on her knees. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. She takes her hair, cleanses his feet. She's got the ointment around her, her neck. I mean, can you picture it? I mean, all eye, I mean, just silence, all eyes on, on her, wondering what is going to happen next. What is she doing? It's a beautiful scene, but it's, it's also shocking. An unclean and unwelcome woman of the city interrupted a formal banquet and is weeping at the feet of Jesus. Why is she crying? Well, these are tears of joy. These are tears befitting contrition and repentance. These are tears of worship and relief. The burden is lifted. She has a newfound freedom, a new identity in Christ. Maybe she's heard about Jesus touching the leper and healing him, or when Jesus healed the paralytic and forgave his sins. She's heard the message of Jesus. She's heard his preaching. Whatever she's heard and seen, she knows and believes that Jesus is her Savior. So she honors him by humbly washing his feet with her hair. She believes Jesus is the Messiah. In traditional Middle Eastern society, a woman would not uncover her hair. To let down her hair would be shameful. She was to only do so for the very first time on her wedding night as kind of a final pledge of loyalty, right? You let down your hair and, you, and you've demonstrated, I'm yours. Like, I don't let my hair down for anybody, but there's a commitment there now. Letting down her hair in public, like, like I said, would be shameful. But in her deep gratitude toward Jesus, the woman ignored the social propriety and treated Jesus like a king, with humility and vulnerability, she publicly declared her loyalty to Jesus. She lets down her hair for Jesus, as it were, because she's her Lord. He is her Lord. Her hair was her glory, right? Hair symbolized her glory, and she submits her glory, as it were, at the feet of Jesus. The woman believed Jesus is Lord, worthy of her submission. Thus she kissed his feet. Kissing his feet, again, demonstrated humility and subordination, adoration and loyalty. It was a highly unusual act that symbolized the woman's joy over her forgiveness and her deep sense of gratitude. So with simple, unrestrained worship, she honored Jesus. She revered him as her Savior, as her Lord, as her King. In addition, she confessed her allegiance to Jesus by anointing his feet with perfume, the alabaster flask of ointment was a sealed bottle of expensive perfume. It would have been hanging around her neck, right? Women of the day carried a small uh, like a alabaster flask around their neck, and it would have been a dowry. In, in other words, this is her livelihood. It's very precious to her, and it's essentially all of her wealth on a bottle around her neck now poured on Jesus' feet. I mean, could you imagine? Consider all your earthly wealth, your, your mortgage, your, everything you own, held in a little bottle, and you pour it on the rabbi's feet. It's all gone now. The woman gives him everything. It's in culturally unmistakable fashion, the woman has confessed her loyalty to Jesus and submitted her life to him. 
she has shown everyone there, not that she was seeking their attention, but everyone knows this woman is for real. She has expressed deep, deep love for him. Plus, she obviously believes Jesus is God. Why do I say that? Because only God forgives sins, and she clearly believes Jesus forgives her sins. If Jesus was only a prophet, if he was only a good teacher, then she would thank Jesus and give her offering at the temple, right? That you would, she would give her thank offering at the temple to, to honor God for forgiving her sins. But Jesus is God, so she brings her offering to him. She understands who Jesus is. She understands he deserves her worship. He is worthy to receive her costly sacrifice because he is God. I mean, these are just extraordinary evidences of the woman's loving affection of Jesus. She didn't allow the social norms to prevent her from honest worship. She displayed genuine brokenness over her sin and godly sorrow leading to repentance. And then she acted in faith, believing that Jesus is Savior, He's Lord, and He's God. Even if she could not have explained that to you, her actions demonstrated it. It's a moving scene, a moving scene of pure worship. But not everyone is worshiping. Not everyone is amazed. Next, we contrast the woman with the Pharisee. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. The Pharisee, no doubt, is outraged. The woman has made his home ceremonially unclean. Or maybe, maybe we could say Jesus has made his home unclean because if Jesus didn't spend time with these sinners, none of this would have happened. The Pharisee has no regard for the shocking demonstration of love and affection. He's completely clueless to what he has just witnessed. The Pharisee thinks to himself, you know, if Jesus were a prophet... He would know what's going on here. And of course, a prophet who knew that wouldn't allow it to happen. Therefore, Jesus is not a prophet, let alone God. But actually, the opposite is true. Jesus does know what's going on, and that's the point. He knows and he allows it to happen. Jesus is God. He knows all things. He came to save sinners like this woman. He came to pay the price for people like this woman. But Jesus is not the type of prophet that Simon appreciates and respects. A true prophet, according to Simon, a true prophet avoids sinners. He wants a, Simon wants a savior made in his own image, the ultimate Pharisee, a political leader. He's clueless to his own desperate need for a compassionate savior. He's oblivious to, to what he actually has in common with the woman. All he sees are the differences. So he totally misunderstands Jesus. With contempt, Simon quietly accuses Jesus of being a false prophet. Jesus can't be Savior. He doesn't, he's not rescuing us from Roman oppression. Jesus can't be Lord. He's not even a prophet. He's, he doesn't know who's touching him. 
And Jesus certainly cannot be God, for he does not keep our traditions, and he does not keep our laws. The Pharisee was looking for the wrong Christ. Notice that up to this point, Jesus hasn't said a word. No doubt the room was silent, except for the the murmurs and the gasps. At first, people look at the woman, like we said. She enters in, weeping on his feet. They're like, what is going on? Are you seeing this? But then, the gazes quickly turn to Jesus. They're off the woman now, and they're on to Jesus. What is he going to do? How is Jesus going to respond? The expectation would have been that he would rebuke her. Right? He's touching an unclean woman of the city is touching his feet. Onlookers were waiting for him to expose her and shun her and say, get out of here. You're not welcome here. But Jesus accepts the woman's actions. He was compassionate and he quietly confirmed her understanding of his identity. And when he does break the silence, he replies to the Pharisee's heart attitude. Remember, the Pharisee didn't even say any words. He just replies to what the Pharisee is thinking. He he shows Simon that, you know what, I do know all things, and I know your thoughts, and I know this woman. Jesus is not like the Pharisee. He's gracious, and he's self-sacrificing. Of course, Simon kept up appearance, right? In his mind, he's thinking, this guy's a false prophet. Simon, I have something to say to you. Oh, yeah, teacher, yes, say it, please. I'm all ears. He's a hypocrite. To him, Jesus is not Savior, Lord, and God. He doesn't recognize Jesus' true identity because he has no need for a Savior. He is Lord of his own life. His worship-based performance is his identity. Simon is focused on himself. He's already personally fulfilled the roles of Savior, Lord, and God. So Simon the Pharisee really had a preconceived notion of who Jesus was. Nevertheless, he invited him to his house in order to confirm his prejudice about him. The sinful woman, however, honored Jesus. She expressed gratitude, demonstrated love, showed hospitality because she recognized Jesus for who he is. The Pharisee did nothing to show affection to Jesus. In the end, it wasn't his actions that showed what he believed, but it was the Pharisee's inaction that showed what he believed. So the question here, before we continue, is what do you believe about Jesus? What you believe about Him is known by your worship. It's known by your life. What you truly believe about Jesus is known by your love for Him. Are you more like the sinful woman or more like the self-righteous Pharisee? Are you willing to costly, even at the, even at the cost of shame, even at the risk of of others ridiculing you, demonstrate your love for Jesus. She embraced a costly love for Jesus. She was unashamed of the one who had first loved him, first loved her. She is willing to be ridiculed in order to demonstrate her love for the Lord. How could she be so bold? How could she be so courageous, so counterculture? She was compelled by love. Are you compelled by love? Does the gospel grip you and propel you towards costly demonstrations of your love? Jesus said that if anyone is ashamed of me, they cannot be his disciples. 
What does your life reveal about what you truly believe about Jesus? If you love him, you'll lose your life, keep his commandments, and demonstrate your love for him. But again, what sort of truth is strong enough to compel this sort of love in our life? Well, with that, we turn to the second question. We need to ask the second question. The first is, what do you believe about Jesus? We've seen the woman's belief. We've seen the Pharisee's belief. The second question is, what do you believe about forgiveness? What do you believe about forgiveness? In response to Simon's malicious thoughts about him, the master teacher told a parable, which is actually the central climax of the narrative. The parable illustrates the necessity of forgiveness. Look with me at verses 41 to 43. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, you have judged rightly. There's several things to notice about this parable. The first is this, Jesus is the moneylender. He's the one who cancels the debt, which is graciously forgiving sins. We also want to see that the person owing 500 denarii represents the sinful woman, and the person owing 50 denarii represents the Pharisee. And get this, this is important. The debt is not meant to represent actual sins, as though the woman was 10 times more sinful than the Pharisee, but rather our awareness of our sin. The debt here is, is, realized, is really our sense of what we deserve. It's connected to our guilt and view of God's holiness. The Pharisee and the tax collector illustrate this in Luke 18, right? The Pharisee in Luke 18 stands, stands exalted and says, I'm glad I'm not like the tax collector. He had no sense of awareness of his sinfulness. But the tax collector, deeply aware of, of his need and his sinfulness, he's on the ground crying out for mercy, pleading for mercy, because he knows and understands his plight. Or what about Matthew 18? Another parable in Matthew 18 where there's... Um, a man owes a massive amount of money. He goes to the king. He can't pay it. The king forgives him. And how does the, the, the slave respond? He goes and requires other people to pay him. He had no sense of, of understanding of forgiveness. No sense of his own need. We'll come back to that in a minute. Also notice the desired outcome for canceling the debt is love. Jesus says, who will love the one who forgives the debt more. And in this case, well, as is just true, love is not the same as obedience. The question is not, which of them will obey him more? Right? That, that would have been terms the Pharisee could relate to maybe a bit more. What Jesus desires is affectionate love for him. He desires and deserves to be fully trusted and treasured supremely. Receiving and relishing forgiveness is the basis for this sort of love. That's the point of the parable. Love then becomes the reason for obedience. It's not burdensome to keep his commandments because you love him. He's given us the faith to see him, that, that he's bigger, better, and more beautiful than anything else. To the Pharisee, God's commandments, they were burdensome because he didn't love God. And he didn't love God because he didn't see the need for blood-bought forgiveness. To the woman... Giving her life to Christ was a joyful privilege. 
because she did love God, and she loved God because she felt the depth of her sin, and she felt and she understood the depth of forgiveness. The lesson is obvious. The greater the unpayable debt that's canceled, the greater the love for the one who canceled the debt. More debt canceled produces more love for Christ. Not more actual sins forgiven. It's not as though I should sin more so that I'll more forgiven, then I'll love more, right? That's not good logic. Rather, more, the more we're aware of our need for sin, the more we see how my sin separates me from an infinitely holy God, the, the more I will cherish forgiveness. In fact, an awareness of your sinfulness and an understanding of forgiveness is really a mark of maturity. It's really a mark that you're maturing and growing in Christ. I mean, we could use examples like Peter, right? Peter denied Jesus. And how did he respond after he denied Jesus three times? He wept bitterly, had a deep sense of godly sorrow. And, well, the rest is history, right? The whole book of Acts chronicles his love for Christ and his willingness to live out that love. He, he understood his need for forgiveness, and it compelled him to live for the kingdom. Same with Paul, right? Paul could say near the end of his life, I am the worst, the chief of all sinners. He had a deep awareness of his sin. He had a deep awareness of forgiveness, and that propelled him to live his life on mission for Christ. Well, then the question again becomes, where's your awareness of sin? Are you burdened by the guilt of your sins and the cost of forgiveness? Do you feel the offense towards a holy and righteous God? I'm not talking merely at the time of conversion. Each day, the more you understand God's character and how far, far, how far you fall short of it, whatever the sin, then the more you'll understand your need for the debt to be canceled by His merciful forgiveness. And the more you will understand His love for you, and that will result in your spontaneous love for Him and others. If you're a Christian, we understand the debt is paid in full. Past, present, future sins, all paid in full. But there's still a growing awareness of the magnitude of forgiveness. I can illustrate it this way. If this right here is the point of your conversion, you became a Christian right here, as you grow in Christ, as you continue down your life in Christ, well, your awareness of God's holiness just gets more and more. You're 10 years in, you're 20 years in, you're thinking, man, God is much holier than I've ever understood. Now, He's not actually holier, you're just, just your perception of Him goes, is deeper, more profound. And this line represents your sinfulness, right? You're 10 years in, 20 years, it's like, wow, I am more sinful than I ever imagined, right? You're seeing your hard attitude, you're seeing, wow, I'm just proud. Like, I thought I needed to kick that one habit, but man, the, the sin runs deep. And as God sees is holier, my sin is, runs deeper, not actual sin, but at least my awareness. Well, what fills the gap? Well, it's the cross. It's the gospel. Your love for Christ is more significant. God is holier. I'm more sinful. I need the gospel. As I grow in Christ, my need for the gospel becomes greater and greater, not lesser and lesser. It's not as though at conversion I see my need for the gospel and then I move on. At conversion, I hardly even see my need for the gospel. As I grow, I see it more and more. I see, well, I, I'm desperate. I got no other hope. Um, this is what was occurring in the life of the woman. She knew her need, she felt forgiveness, and it was expressed in love. Forgiveness is necessary because we have a great debt that we cannot repay. 
and our understanding of forgiveness will directly impact and drive our love for God. That was the necessity of forgiveness. We also see the evidence of forgiveness. The evidence of forgiveness. Jesus forgives sins, which compels us to love him. And the evidence of that is right here in the text. If you look at verse 44. Jesus tells this parable to Simon. Remember, he's speaking to Simon. Then, verse 44, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. For Simon, this was the most important day of his life. It was the day the Son of God ate at his house. And Jesus is after his heart. He instructs Simon to look at the woman. Right? The woman, the, the, the scene has happened. Jesus tells this parable and he says, Now, now Simon, look at the woman. You wonder if, if Simon could even make eye contact with her. Could he even look at her? And Jesus says, Look, here you see love in action. Then he goes on to explain the parable. In the process, he really utterly shames Simon while defending the woman. The woman did what Simon failed to do. She exceeded, actually. She exceeded in all the social norms. So Jesus exalted her and rebuked Simon. Why didn't Simon the Pharisee, why didn't he offer these courteous kind of customary, um, hospitable kind of gestures? I think it was because he was too in love with himself. He was the honored guest in his mind, and Jesus was a bystander. If the awareness of your sin debt or the sense of your own guilt is small, you will not have an accurate understanding of your need for forgiveness. You will, you will think you are forgiven very little. As a result, you will not be propelled by gospel gratitude to love much. You will fail to see your desperate need for grace, and you will not be compelled to love Christ. In this case, Simon neglected the social norms toward the promised Messiah. So Jesus exposed Simon. He exposed his lack of affection. He contrasts him again with a woman's extraordinary actions. You gave me no water for my feet. That was a common, polite thing to do, right? They wore sandals, the feet would get dirty. It wasn't, it wasn't essential. Like, you did go to people's house and your feet weren't washed at times. But it, but it was expected with an honored guest, right? If, if Jesus is the rabbi, if he's anything that he says he is, you would wash his feet. No kiss, right? This was a greeting towards a friend. If this was someone you cared about or, or, or would, wanted to honor, you would kiss. Again, not necessarily required, but it, would, it was pretty much expected. And he didn't anoint his head with oil. Now, this would have probably been more expected. This was the treatment of a festive guest. He's had a formal banquet here, and you would, you would really think this would happen, but it didn't. So as Jesus points all these things out, again, he's speaking to Simon. All the guests are there. The, town, the people of the town are there, and Jesus is shaming Simon. I mean, the shame is thick. It's, it's tangible. You're in this room. You're like, wow, like Simon's really getting it here because he's a fool. 
The king of the Jews reclined at his table, and he rudely treated him like a stranger. He showed no affection for the second person of the Trinity eating at his table. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. The woman, however, she was culturally foolish, wasn't she? She went against the cultural norms, but she couldn't have been more wise. She chose the one thing necessary. She chose what was most important. Instead of water, the woman gave her tears. Instead of a towel, she gave the glory of her head. Instead of a kiss of a friend, she gave the devotion of profuse kisses to his feet. Instead of ordinary oil, she gave the costly perfume upon his feet. She was transformed by God's grace. She could do no other. She could not help but demonstrate her love. She didn't care what people think. To her, there weren't even other people in the room. It was just her and Jesus. Notice the reversal. The shameful woman who was a sinner is honored, and the religious elite was publicly shamed because of his neglect. In verse, 30, in verse 47, Jesus gives the conclusion, kind of his uh, point, his uh, thesis, as it were. He says, verse 47, Therefore, I tell you, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Jesus explains that genuine love springs from forgiveness and is demonstrated by action because love is compelled by mercy. The woman's acts of love prove that she received forgiveness. Her love isn't the basis for her forgiveness. Jesus is not saying, she loved me, therefore I forgive her. Jesus is saying, you see her acts of love? You don't act this way unless you've been forgiven. You don't do things like this unless you have been loved and you experience the forgiveness of the gospel. This is obvious evidence that she, she gets it. She's been forgiven. She knows she's sinful, and she knows she needs mercy. Her love for Jesus also isn't a way to pay him back for forgiveness. It's not an obligatory duty. It's an inevitable response. You receive this kind of forgiveness? You receive this, this kind of mercy? Well, you're going to love. You're, you're going to show your gratitude. It's an overflow of worship. Salvation and the forgiveness of sins are based on God's grace, received through faith in Jesus Christ, which produces genuine love. Love, therefore, we could say it this way, love is really, it's faith revealed, right? You don't see faith, but you see someone's faith by the way they love. Love has shown that they have faith. In the end, Jesus assured the woman that her sins are forgiven. Her love for him had made it obvious that she was forgiven. I'm, I, what we need to take from this passage is, that, is this. I think this is an important point. Our capacity to love Christ and our eagerness to do so is not a matter of willpower. It's not even really a choice per se. Instead, love for Christ is first and foremost the overflow, the outworking of your faith. When you believe certain things about Jesus, you will love him. If you do not believe certain things about Jesus, you will not love him. And the evidence of your love is your life. The evidence that that you have internalized the reality that you're deeply sinful and and God meets you in your sin with this forgiveness where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. When the gospel is rich to you, you love So it's not a matter of saying, I'm going to love more this week. It's more a matter of, 
I'm going to understand the gospel more this week, and love will be the inevitable result. Now, sure, at times my heart is entangled with sin, and I'm focused on myself, and in those moments I choose to love, right, contrary to what I'm feeling. We all have those moments where, you know, I don't really feel like loving, but I know I need to. But even in those moments, it's the gospel that compels me to make that choice, right? It's not an obligation in the strictest sense. That's why Jesus said, whoever loves father or or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Why would he say that? Because it is natural to love father, mother, son, and daughter. You don't have to tell me to love my daughters and my wife. It's natural. So he's saying, if you don't love me like, like, the, like you love natural friendships, well, then the relationship maybe hasn't happened yet. Right? It should just be an overflow if you've received the gospel, if you understood it deeply. It's even more natural to love the Savior when He rescues you from sin and death. That's, that's just natural. I mean, that, that's what happens. So, brothers and sisters, the question we got to ask ourselves, do you, do you treasure forgiveness in Christ? Are, are you aware of your sin? We don't, we don't camp there, right? We don't live in our, in our awareness of our sin. But we take, we take the path through our sin to get to forgiveness to see, wow, man, forgiveness is precious. The grace, God's grace is my treasure. Well, we see one more thing about forgiveness. We saw its necessity, we saw its evidence, and now we see the result, the result of forgiveness. The obvious result is salvation and assurance of it. That's why Jesus can tell the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. He wasn't forgiving her sins at that moment. He was saying, well, obviously, your sins are forgiven. I can see it by the way you're acting. And then in verse 50, he says, your faith has saved you. I've seen your faith in action. It saved you. I'm, you're, you're forgiven. I'll give you that assurance. I'll give you that confidence. I can reassure that of you. What precious words to the woman. But if we look at the text, we see another result of forgiveness, and we actually get a glimpse of life without forgiveness. If you look at verse 48, and he said to her, your, fin, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The shame-filled house party has turned a corner. It went from culturally outrageous to religiously unthinkable. Right? Everyone in the room is thinking, he, does, he cannot say that. No, that, that is not. Who does he think he is? Only God forgives sins. Does he think he's God? They realize that Jesus claims to be the moneylender. He cancels debt. Thus, Jesus is not merely declaring that God has forgiven the woman's sins. He is saying he has forgiven the woman's sins. Notice how the Pharisees and his friend respond. They don't rejoice. They don't say, finally, the promised Messiah. We've been waiting for the one to forgive our sins. He's here right in our living room. Let's worship him. This is good news. That's not how they respond. They respond with doubt and scorn. They don't have peace. They're unsettled because they've rejected the offer of forgiveness. The woman, on the other hand, she goes in peace. She doesn't utter a single word. Right? You notice that? The woman didn't say a single word throughout the whole narrative, and Jesus commends her faith. Now she has peace with God through Christ. 
and she has the feeling of assurance enjoyed by those who are forgiven. This is perhaps the first time in her life the woman experiences peace, true peace. She leaves the Pharisee's house dramatically different. Her burden is lifted, her brokenness made whole, her sins forgiven, her guilt removed, her shame taken away. I wonder how much we experience that kind of peace. I wonder what the woman would have felt like and if we can relate. If you truly trust Jesus and treasure him, then he said to you, go in peace. You can rest in your identity in Christ. You can delight in the one whom you love. It begins with a deep awareness of your sin, followed by profound gratitude for gospel forgiveness, which leads to a lifestyle of love and an abiding sense of peace. We've looked at two questions. Two questions to kind of pierce through this, to kind of give us a, a thought about what do I believe about Jesus and what do I believe about forgiveness and how does that um, show true in my life? Two people answer these questions in very radically different ways. The Pharisee believes Jesus is a false prophet and he cannot forgive sins. The woman believes Jesus is Lord and Savior, the one who has forgiven her sins. The result is one person ignores Jesus and the other person loves him. But don't miss this. The story is really about Jesus, isn't it? It's not about a Pharisee. It's not about a sinful woman. The story is about Jesus. Jesus takes notice of the sinful outcast and has compassion on her. Jesus is the one who went to the Pharisee's house because he was after his heart. He was graciously giving the Pharisee an opportunity to see the gospel. Jesus forgives sins. Jesus is to be loved and honored supremely. After this encounter with the Pharisee and the woman, the Jews would publicly reject Jesus. It was not far away. From this point on, the opposition for him would continually increase, and, and he would fortify his resolve to die on the cross in Jerusalem for hopeless sinners like this woman, like you and me. The cross is a crowning achievement. It's a crowning accomplishment of his earthly ministry. It makes possible all that happened in the Gospels. It makes this story possible. It makes, the cross makes it so Jesus can say, your sins are forgiven. And because of the gospel, because of truth, like what we saw this morning, we can cry out with the hymn writer, more love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee, more love to thee. And it's my understanding we will have more love for Christ the more we cherish and love the gospel. Let's pray together.